one is we uh, are continuing uh, our series in the book of Acts. We're, well, just our second sermon thus far in this series. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Uh, as you are aware, it's our practice to stand when we read God's words. Let me ask that you, if you are able uh, to do that now. Let's stand. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field and uh, with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, uh, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. That we would hear and know and understand and believe and trust your word. And we pray that you would use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's always kind of fascinating for um, perhaps maybe more so for parents and, and grandparents than for others. But it's always kind of fascinating, I think, to watch as... As children get older and older and kind of notice the characteristics and personality traits and quirks and whatever else uh, that they have as older teenagers in their 20s, 30s, even beyond perhaps. And, and to think back, I saw that even from their earliest days. It, it can be kind of fun to watch as kids grow up and think, well, now there's that there's that characteristic again. There's that personality trait that, that I saw back before they were even one. Back when they were just newborns. That you just kind of notice and it starts to, to, to come out and you become aware of it. And then you, you realize later in life 
I've seen this before. This, is, this has been a part of this child's personality from the very beginning. That's in essence what our passage shows us today. Not a child, a different organism, uh, but an organism nonetheless. We actually get a glimpse into uh, characteristics, personality traits of the church in its sort of seedling days, in its sort of beginning Days We get a glimpse of the, the commitments of the church. And they're the same commitments that we will see throughout the book of Acts. Uh, in some ways, perhaps, a lot of the sermons are going to sound the same. Because there's a lot of places where there's a, a high commitment to God's Word and to prayer and to fellowship. Uh, but you see all of those things right here in this context, right from the very beginning. Notice first the church's commitment to God's Word. Jesus has just uh, ascended. He's just left the, the, physical, his, you know, the, the, presence, the physical presence of uh, His followers and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And right before He did, He gave them uh, instructions. He gave those 11 remaining uh, apostles, those 11 men, uh, instructions. And his last words to them, you have to look back to verses 4 and 5 to find it. But his instructions were, go back to Jerusalem, go into Jerusalem and don't leave and wait. And what do you notice these disciples doing at the beginning of our passage? Jesus has ascended. He's gone to the right hand of the Father. And so they go back to Jerusalem and they wait. You already, right off the bat, you get a, a glimpse of the church's commitment to uh, the, the revealed will of God, to God's Word. Notice Luke uh, recounts for us the 11 apostles, the 11 names. There are only 11 there. Uh, you, you find out why later in the passage uh, Judas Iscariot has betrayed Jesus and uh, has gone and uh, taken his own life here. The, the account is he, he fell in a field and his bowels all fell out. His guts all sort of fell out. Um, it's the kind of passage you read when you have sons uh, because they kind of get caught up in uh, stories like that. The, the list that, that Luke gives here is, is basically the same list he gives in, in his Gospel. There's a little rearrangement of some names, but it's the same 11. And then in verse 15, Peter stands up and he begins to speak. And notice the first thing he says. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. He recognizes that that this has been talked about before. This, this has been discussed back in the Old Testament. And so in Peter's mind, he's kind of looking around the room going, okay, we're all here, the 11 of us, and it's about 120 people, the, the women we're told, and, and Mary, Jesus' mother, and his brothers are there. And... And he recognizes there's, there's only 11 of the apostles. And he instinctively knows the Bible's talked about this. We have the Old Testament. We know that. 
And we know that, that the number is supposed to be 12. Yes, Jesus chose 12, so the number should be 12. But there's parallel between the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, and so there's supposed to be 12. But Peter actually knows more than that. Peter knows Psalm 69, and he knows Psalm 109, which we just read just a few minutes ago. The psalm that you and I read and go, okay, wait, there might have been a few too many third-person singular pronouns. He and him, I'm getting confused as to whether the he is Jesus or is the he this betrayer person. And, and Peter understands exactly what the passage or what the psalm says. And so Psalm 109, written hundreds of years before Christ, Peter says, this is Judas. This is, this is Judas. And look, it says, let someone else take his place. Let another take his office. And so he says there in the midst of this, of this small early church, Scripture had to be fulfilled. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We know that, that David wrote these words. We know that the Psalms describe the very setting in which you and I are sitting right now. And, and therefore, we are commanded by Psalm 109 to find someone to take Judas's place. You do realize we have... I couldn't, I couldn't begin, I, I probably shouldn't say this, I couldn't begin to count how many Bibles our household owns. They didn't own any. I mean, you realize Gutenberg hadn't lived yet. That, that's not for another 1,400 plus years. They didn't have Bibles, books in there and everywhere. In there. I mean, they, they had to know God's Word just by knowing it, by talking about it, by singing it, just from sitting in, um, in the, the synagogue week in and week out. They could go there and they could read pieces, read scrolls, but they didn't have the whole Bible like you and I do. And yet Peter could recall... Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and recognize these psalms talk about this setting. Psalm 69 warns, may his camp become desolate. Psalm 109 says, let another take his office. And so these disciples are acting in obedience to God's Word by selecting Matthias, by selecting someone to take Judas's place. Now, perhaps you're thinking, now wait, hold on, they cast lots. It comes down to, to these two men and they, um, they, they cast lots. So maybe, maybe it'd be a whole lot easier if we just cast lots for elders and deacons. Forget training, forget nominating, forget all that. Let's just cast lots and see how uh, things turn out. But I want you to notice that this is the last time in Scripture this happens. Once the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, nobody ever casts lots again. 
the, the ministry, the, the, that particular sort of means of determining God's will and plan. Uh, it, we see it in the Old Testament off and on. We see it uh, in the work of the priests. We see it in other places. Uh, but this is the last place that lots are cast in order to make a decision. Peter puts forth some qualifications. Uh, They should be men who have been uh, followers of Christ from His his, um, baptism up until His resurrection and they need to be witnesses of His ascension. And they agreed on these qualifications. And so then they put forth two men, perhaps the only two men that fit that, um, those qualifications. And then cast lots and it fell to Matthias. We don't have a magic eight ball that you shake. Should so-and-so be an elder? All signs point to yes. Sounds good to me. Instead, we use what wisdom and guidance and biblical framework that God has given us in His Word. Jesus told these eleven to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit. And we find them doing exactly that. So they returned to Jerusalem and they waited. There's a word we don't like very much. We're um, we're Inigo Montoya and the Princess Bride. There always has to be a Princess Bride reference somewhere. He's standing at the top of the cliffs of insanity, waiting on the man in black who's sort of climbing his way up. And, and he looks over and says, I don't suppose you could speed things up. And the man in black says, well, look, I'm, I'm climbing the cliffs of insanity. It doesn't happen all that quickly. You're just going to have to wait. And Inigo Montoya's response is, I hate waiting. We hate waiting. You, you do realize this past week, all over the news this past week, I say all over the news, all over my one news source this past week, uh, studies that Chick-fil-A has the slowest drive through of all the fast food options out there. Did y'all see this? Okay. You're not getting out of your car and someone's handing you lunch through a window and we're going to complain. Of course, in my experience, it's because Chick-fil-A has cars in their drive-thru. We can save that for another day. We complain because Chick-fil-A took a minute longer than McDonald's would have. Or two minutes longer than McDonald's. Or three minutes longer than, than Burger King. We're not even getting out of our car to get lunch. And we can't wait. We hate waiting. Israel was in, well, Judah, the, the southern kingdom, was in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Go read uh, the book of Esther. How much time lapses between Queen Vashti being deposed and Esther Esther coming to power and then the the deliverance of the Jews. The disciples go back to Jerusalem and they wait 
Ten days. Ten whole days. I know what you're thinking. It's ten days. We don't want to wait two days for our Amazon package to get here. We're trying to figure out how can I do the one day shipping or if they had a drone they could drop it off this afternoon. Okay, it's not 400 years. It's not 40 days or nights. It's not 40 years. It's not 700 years or 70 years. It's 10 days. But you and I hate waiting. We live in an instant gratification world. And we expect that instant gratification right here and right now. It's amazing how many times the long view is taken in Scripture. It's amazing how much you need to live the Christian life. You've got to have the long view. You don't get the one day shipping view of my sanctification. I want to grow in grace. And I want to do it right now. So let me just order that up and it should be here this afternoon and I should be good. We would do well to learn the spiritual discipline of waiting. Could I, could I, even, could I even go so far as to suggest, parents, this is a learned trait. Waiting is learned. Uh, and our kids aren't going to learn it unless we teach it to them. So let me encourage you, uh, find ways to teach them um, the beauty of the word wait. The disciples are committed to God's word enough that they'll go back to Jerusalem and they'll stay together and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, however long that's going to take. But we also see the, the church's commitment to prayer Notice what these 120 people are doing together as they're waiting. Look at verse 14. And all these with one accord, that's not, you can make the joke if you want to, but that's not a car. Uh, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Our idea of waiting is um, I'll just sit and do nothing and let time pass until the thing comes that I'm waiting on. Their, their waiting isn't a passive waiting, it's an active waiting. We find these 120 praying together. They, they appear to be using these 10 days to pray and study Scripture. Let me make one observation. Since we're right on the heels of a series of sermons on the offices of elder and deacon, uh, we, we pointed out that those offices are not open to women. Notice, uh, we don't stop women in prayer meetings. We don't say, but oh wait, you can't be an elder or a deacon. And for that matter, you can't do anything. You can't even pray in public. Because right here, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So there's more than one woman in the room and they're all participating in prayer together. In fact, it's a handful of women, more than likely, all uniting their hearts and their minds together in prayer. 
It's not one prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. It's a a constant, fervent praying. It's praying constantly or praying continually, uh, just as you and I are instructed to do. So what are they praying for? If if they're that devoted, they're that committed to praying during this 10-day window, what exactly are they praying for? Well, technically we aren't told, except that it's implied that the command of Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit drove them to pray. In other words, they're praying because they've been told to wait for the Spirit. So it seems reasonable that they're praying that Jesus would do what He said He would do and send the Spirit. If go to Jerusalem, stay there, and wait for the Spirit means in their minds pray, it surely suggests that they're praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're praying that Jesus would do exactly what He would do. That ought to drive us to pray. Praying God's promises. Praying God's Word back to Him. For that matter, if I'm told to wait, and if I'm told to anticipate the Holy Spirit... Those are two things that should drive me to prayer more than anything. One, because I hate waiting and I need to pray for the grace to wait. And two, because I desperately need the Holy Spirit and I should be driven to pray for His presence and activity in my life. What are the things you pray for most? If you were to sort of make a list of the things that you primarily pray for. What would that list look like? Or what kind of um, what kind of categories would maybe the, the top five, top ten things fit under? Health issues. People you know, perhaps yourself, dealing with sickness, disease in some form or fashion, or friends, family dealing with health issues. Perhaps um, the salvation of the lost friends and family, people you know who've never trusted in Christ for their salvation, you're praying fervently for their conversion. Travel. Uh, The test you've got coming up. Work. uh, Some difficult relationship at work. uh, Maybe doubts or fears that you have. How often do we pray God's promises back to Him? God promised. Jesus says to His disciples, I will build My church and the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. You realize nobody uses gates in an attack? If you're using gates, it's because you've retreated. In other words, Jesus promises the church is on the advance. Churches don't retreat. The kingdom of God doesn't doesn't hole up. It's actually on the advance such that even the gates of hell has to close its gates and it cannot prevail against the building of the church. Is that a promise you pray back to Jesus? Would you do that which you've promised? And would you use me? Would you use us even to that end? 
Do you pray God's Word? Do you pray His commands? Do you pray His promises back to Him? These 120 men and women are devoted to prayer. And surely they're praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for their witness for Christ, to, to, to do, to accomplish that which Christ has already said. You will be My disciples in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. There's a promise right on their ears, fresh in their hearing, ringing still in their ears that they perhaps are praying back to Him. We see the church's commitment to God's Word. We see the church's commitment to prayer. We also see the church's commitment to corporate unity. I made this sort of as a, as a one-off maybe observation, I think, last week. Let me call a little more attention to it uh, this morning. Jesus' instructions to the disciples were, stay in Jerusalem, wait. He didn't say... Stay together and wait. Like, if they had gone back to their homes, if they'd gone in sort of their separate ways in Jerusalem, they still would have been going to Jerusalem and waiting. They weren't explicitly commanded, be together when you do it. Where are they? They're in the upper room. Now, it might be that upper room. It may not be. The words are actually different. But some, some upstairs place where they can all be together. Some upstairs place where they can all be in, in one place and all be together. They understand that they need each other. They understand that they need fellowship and prayer and the Word. They need each other to be encouraged and equipped for ministry. Over and over again, there's they this and they that. It's the eleven. It's um, Jesus' mother Mary. It's His brothers. It's His brothers Jude, James, Jude, the author of the book of Jude. James, the author of the book of James. James, we'll see in Acts 15, becomes the first moderator of General Assembly and a leader in the church. Jude and James weren't believers during Jesus' life. It wasn't until after His resurrection that they are converted. It's not until later in life that they come to faith in Christ. Turn with me real quick. Let me just show you this. Um, Luke likes, turn to Luke 8. Luke calls our attention to women in ways that other writers don't. And in Luke 8, we get this um, account of women who are following and serving uh, Jesus and the twelve. And some of them are actually listed by name in Luke 8. Verse 1, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with Him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their 
means. Perhaps those very women are the ones in this upper room now with the rest of the disciples. With this group of 120 And they are committed to unity. There's that word with one accord. That means that they were united. That means that they had one heart, one mind, all together. They weren't just in the room together, but they were united together in their longings, in their hopes, in their dreams, in their commitments, in their fervency for the coming of the Holy Spirit for the growth and and establishment of the kingdom in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. This incidentally is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. There in in the upper room, He's he's praying for through this, this upper room discourse in John 14 through 17, He's praying for the unity of the church. He's praying for His disciples to be one even as the Father and He are one. We get this glimpse of the unity of the church in its earliest days, of the New Testament church in its earliest days. Think about it for a second. The eleven are standing there watching as Jesus ascends to heaven. Two of those eleven have already shown evidence of um, being a little power hungry. James and John, Mrs. Zebedee, it appears, says, Hey, Jesus, would you, would you let... These, one sit at your right hand, one at your left when you come into your kingdom. They've sought power. They've sought authority. They've sought this in the past. With Jesus gone, this is the perfect opportunity for disunity, for power struggle, for argument, for seeking the the place of of authority, of fame, of fortune, of the place of leadership. And there's none of that. James and John aren't the ones that step forward and go, well, you know, we had this conversation with Jesus about sitting in His right hand and left hand, and and now that He's gone, I mean, I know you can't really verify that, but we did. And so we're going to take the leadership now. There's no argument, there's no division within this early body. It was the perfect opportunity for for one of them to start to to jockey for positions of power and authority. But that's not at all the picture. It's the picture of the exact opposite. No conflict, no argument, nobody disgruntled, no frustration. No stepping on one to gain the credit and the honor. They're united together in one accord. They're, they're, they're one together. Seeking to commit to God's Word. Commit to prayer. And a commitment to corporate unity. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First, 
sort of the obvious, I guess, um, application of our own commitment, both as a church and as individuals, uh, to the ordinary means of grace. God has, has given, Christ has given us the Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship with each other uh, as, as the means by which He communicates grace to us. And so we as a congregation, we as individuals, should be committed to the Word, to prayer, to the sacraments, to fellowship together. truth is, if you want to grow as a believer, if you want to grow as a Christian, then these are the tools that He's given to do just that. And if we're frequently absent from the place where these tools are dispensed, are used, then we shouldn't be surprised by our weak faith. A second application, um, examine your prayers. Are you laying out your wishes to God? Are you saying, all right, God, what I really would like is to change your mind on this is what I want, and I'd like for you to change your mind on it so that I can have it. That's not really the point of prayer. It's one thing to pray your longings, to pray your desires, and to recognize that yours may not line up with His. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer calls down His promises and if necessary, changes us to conform to His will. You see that quite honestly in the pattern of Christ Himself. I'd love for this cup, if there's any other way, I'd love not to have to drink of this cup, but Your will, not mine. Examine your prayers. Are you, are you praying His promises I'm not saying quit praying for health issues. I'm not saying quit praying for, for those kinds of things. I'm saying add to it. Learn to take God's promises and actually pray them. Turn them back to Him and say, in your word, you say this. And pray it right back to Him. You command us to reach the lost. You command us to make disciples of all nations. Well, I have a cousin who. I have a brother who. I have a sibling who. I have a friend who. Would you fulfill that promise in them? A third application is just um, in case one of you starts to think this. I've got to make the observation about usefulness in the kingdom of God. We don't have time here to sort of draw out the, the compare and contrast Peter and Judas, but, but at least recognize this. Not too many days ago in this passage, jump into Acts 1, jump into this upper room for a second. Not too many days ago, Peter denied knowing Jesus. It wasn't really that long, just a few weeks ago, that Peter, three times while Jesus is on trial, said, I don't know him. He's the one who stands up and becomes the sort of the first leader of the church in these days. He's the one who stands and says, remember Psalm 69? Remember Psalm 109? You would do well to be encouraged by this. We frequently think, you don't know what I've done. 
I mean, I, I mean, I can't possibly participate in church. I mean, I, you just don't even know. Peter said, I don't know him. And becomes the first to stand up and say, we see this in God's Word. Be encouraged. There's not, there's not, yes, there may be sins out there that disqualify someone for, for office. That may actually be true. That happens. But that doesn't mean there's sins out there that completely eliminate you from any usefulness at all in the kingdom of God. If you stand up and say, yeah, I've, I had an opportunity to proclaim Christ to some unbelievers and I was scared and I just didn't do it. Be of good cheer. You're in Peter's company. That doesn't make you unuseful in his kingdom. He uses sinners. He uses fallen, broken, sinful men. This is the amazing thing about the church. You and I individually are absolutely unworthy of our salvation. It is all of grace received by grace through faith in Christ. But then he takes these unworthy, unworthy redeemed sinners and says, now you're the means by which this kingdom grows. Go. But go not in your own strength, not in your own wisdom. Go because I'm with you by my spirit. Grace covenant, be encouraged. You have the promised presence of the Holy Spirit. And He's with you as we go out, fallen, broken, sinful people as we are, and carrying the gospel to the lost. Let's pray together.